This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Support Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 138th edition of the program. Today is April 12th of 2018, and before we get into the news, as usual, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors. And this week, we have Brian Jennifer Kishpa, Jesse A. Abrams, Michael Taylor, Nicholas Gray, Pete Dion, Shadowwalker, S. Underwood, and Sunil Sahai. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport to get segments earlier than when they are posted to YouTube, so you get a little bit of bonus content there. So on today's episode, after Trump announced that he'd be withdrawing troops from Syria, he's now taken a 180 degree turn after another alleged chemical attack in Syria. Also, I'll tell you about the latest round of attacks that Democratic Party loyalists have lobbed towards Bernie Sanders. The FCC blocked another Freedom of Information Act request in order to shield their infamously corrupt chairman, Ajit Pai. I'll provide you with an update to the Oklahoma teacher strike, and we'll learn what Education Secretary Betsy DeVos thinks about the Oklahoma teachers. Spoiler alert, she's not a fan. Also on this episode, Oregon becomes the second state to protect net neutrality. We'll also revisit Trump's campaign argument about wanting to kill the families of terrorists and see if he still actually feels that way. And when it comes to Flint, Michigan, they still don't have clean drinking water, although their governor is declaring that the lead contamination crisis is over. I'll tell you why he's wrong and how that's affecting policy there. And also on this episode, we will talk about Kamala Harris, specifically about her refusal to swear off corporate donors. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's episode. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Let's do it. Just days after President Donald Trump announced that he'd be bringing American troops currently in Syria home, another gas attack has been reported in Syria, with fingers pointing mostly towards Assad and even Putin as potential culprits. So I guess we're not going anywhere. Now, of course, this prompted Donald Trump to respond via Twitter, where he said, Many dead, including women and children, in mindless chemical attack in Syria. Area of atrocity is in lockdown and encircled by Syrian army, making it completely inaccessible to outside world. President Putin, Russia, and Iran are responsible for backing animal Assad. Big price to pay. Open area immediately for medical help and verification. Another humanitarian disaster for no reason whatsoever. Sick. Now, embedded in that tweet is the assumption that Donald Trump wants to open the area that's currently in lockdown so there can be a proper investigation conducted before he makes any rash military decisions. However, It didn't take long for him to change his mind, because when he spoke about this, he seemed to be a lot more militaristic in what he was saying. I'd like to begin by condemning the heinous attack on innocent Syrians with banned chemical weapons. 
It was an atrocious attack. It was horrible. You don't see things like that as bad as the news is around the world. You just don't see those images. We are studying that situation extremely closely. We are meeting with our military and everybody else. And we'll be making some major decisions over the next 24 to 48 hours. We are very concerned when a thing like that can happen. This is about humanity. We're talking about humanity. And it can't be allowed to happen. So we'll be uh, looking at that barbaric act and studying what's going on. We're trying to get people in there. As you know, it's been surrounded, so it's very hard to get people in, because not only has it been hit, it's been surrounded. And if they're innocent, why aren't they allowing people to go in and prove? Because, as you know, they're claiming they didn't make the attack. So if it's Russia, if it's Syria, if it's Iran, if it's all of them together, we'll figure it out, and we'll know the answers quite soon. So we're looking at that very, very strongly and very seriously. So things are moving pretty fast, and by the time you see this video, it may be the case that we already know what Donald Trump is wanting to do. Now, before I dive any deeper into this discussion, I can't not point out the hypocrisy in what Donald Trump is saying here, because as someone who supposedly cares a lot about humanity, his illegal drone war killed an estimated 4,500 civilians abroad just last year. However, he wants us to believe that all of a sudden he has this newfangled appreciation for life, when we all know that that's not the case. Now, of course, I think that the reason why he's sounding a lot more hot is because it's now officially the case that John Bolton is his national security advisor. And almost immediately when he stated his intent to withdraw troops from Syria, what happened? His advisors, mainstream media pundits, all beat him over the head and basically said, this is a horrible idea, you're going to empower ISIS, and now this is kind of being framed as well since Donald Trump announced that he wants to bring the troops home from Syria and kind of uh, lay off of Syria, now Assad felt empowered and decided to gas his own people. So the question is, what's going to happen? Will Donald Trump act? Will he decide to escalate it even further and bomb Syria again? Well, before we talk about that, first and foremost, taking military action action, generally speaking, it's not up to Donald Trump because as Representative Barbara Lee points out, correctly so, this is not President Trump's decision to make. Congress, not the president, gets to decide when to go to war. And this is a really important point because this shouldn't be about what Donald Trump wants because if Congress does not authorize this war in Syria, then nothing should be done. And the reason why this was a really important part of U the U.S. Constitution is because if we get a maniac like Donald Trump or George W. Bush, then they can't unilaterally wage war. They have to go through Congress. But now we've just abandoned that philosophy. And in the mainstream media, we don't even discuss this. We don't even discuss whether or not Donald Trump should ask for Congress's approval to wage war in Syria. Why not? The Constitution certainly wasn't amended. I don't remember it being amended. Do you? So why aren't we making him go through Congress? Why isn't the media pointing this out more so? And additionally, we have to ask ourselves this. Why on earth would Assad carry out a chemical attack on his own people just days after President Donald Trump announced that he would be bringing American troops home? That flies in the face of reason. 
Why would you basically provoke the United States to attack you and stay there when they just announced that they would be leaving your country? Makes no sense whatsoever, right? I mean, when Assad finally, seemingly at least, gets Donald Trump off of his back, he does something he knows will definitely provoke Donald Trump to take military action against him specifically. I mean, why would he do that? It's not adding up. And these were the same types of questions we were asking the last time when it was reported that Assad used chemical weapons against his own people, which ultimately persuaded Donald Trump to attack a Syrian airfield. And as it turns out, Secretary of Defense James Mattis recently admitted that there was no evidence that Assad used poison gas on his people. So, Donald Trump bombed Syria when they did not have sufficient evidence to implicate Assad. And now we're doing it again. So, getting to that article, Newsweek's Ian Wilkie states, lost in the hyper-politicized hullabaloo surrounding the Nunes Memorandum and the Still Dossier, was the striking statement by Secretary of Defense James Mattis that the U.S. has no evidence that the Syrian government used the banned nerve agent sarin against its own people. This assertion flies in the face of the White House Memorandum, which was rapidly produced and declassified to justify an American Tomahawk missile strike against the Shayrat base in Syria. Mattis offered no temporal qualifications, which means that both the 2017 event in Khan Shikhun and the 2013 tragedy in Ghouta are unsolved cases in the eyes of the Defense Department and Defense Intelligence Agency. Mattis went on to acknowledge that aid groups and others had provided evidence and reports but stopped short of naming President Assad as the culprit. There were casualties from organophosphate poisoning in both cases. That much is certain. But America has accused Assad of direct responsibility for sarin attacks and even blamed Russia for culpability in the Khan Shikun tragedy. Now its own military boss has said on the record that we have no evidence to support this conclusion. In so doing, Mattis tacitly impugned the interventionists who were responsible for pushing the Assad is guilty narrative twice without sufficient supporting evidence, at least in the eyes of the Pentagon. And now we're being asked to buy into this same narrative again without evidence. We need details. An investigation needs to be conducted. We can't just act hastily. This is the military. Russia is there. We can escalate. But the mainstream media, politicians, are telling us we have to act quickly. We can't even think about it. Now, I'm not suggesting that Assad is a nice guy. In fact, I think he's an objectionable human being. But the question isn't whether or not he's a good person. It's whether or not he's guilty here. And we currently don't have enough evidence to pin blame on him. But for some reason, the narrative is that we have to take action quickly. Donald Trump has to retaliate immediately. Hence why he said he wants to make a decision within 24 to 48 hours. It's because people in his ear neoconservative warmongers are pushing him to do that. The mainstream media, who has advertisers in the military-industrial complex, uh, defense contractors, is pushing for this. So Donald Trump is influenced with all of this chatter in his ear to do something incredibly irresponsible and hasty that would be horribly problematic. In fact, so problematic that Russian diplomats are saying that the situation could potentially spiral out of control if Donald Trump does, in fact, attack Syria. I mean, he's literally now flirting with World War III, and that's not hyperbolic to say. And as John Keeley of Common Dreams reports, with war fanatic John Bolton in the White House for the first time as his new national security advisor on Monday night, 
President Donald Trump gathered his military advisors together as lawmakers and anti-war policy experts raised warnings that any move by the president to attack Syria in the wake of a suspected chemical attack over the weekend would not only be extremely dangerous, but also illegal. So here we are again for probably the 10th time since Donald Trump became president worrying about the prospect of us escalating and getting even closer to World War III. It's already bad enough that we are now officially living through another Cold War. But they're influencing Donald Trump, people in the media, politicians, to take quick action here, to retaliate before we have evidence that Assad is, in fact, guilty. Now, people are trying to frame this as the compassionate thing to do, to retaliate against Assad for him using chemical weapons on his own people, that's the humanitarian thing to do. But let me remind you again that there's no such thing as a humanitarian war. And people who are framing this as a compassionate thing to do, to attack Syria and beating the war drums, are lying to you. The amount of destruction and devastation that could ensue if Trump's actions here escalated into a hot war between the U.S. and Russia would be incomprehensible. Hundreds of thousands could potentially die in that type of scenario. So by pulling on the heartstrings of Americans, by trying to frame this as the compassionate thing to do, it's not the first time they've done this, they're, they're lying to you. This is propaganda. CNN, I believe it was the network that actually had on a little girl from Syria who basically said, you have to help us. You know, you have to take out Assad. Save us. That's the type of saber rattling and propaganda that we see in uh, mainstream news. But when you actually talk to people like Tulsi Gabbard, Rania Kalik, a journalist who went to Syria and who's had conversations with the Syrian people, I mean, it's lose-lose for them. They don't necessarily like Assad, but taking him out would be probably the worst-case scenario for them because then you allow terrorist organizations like ISIS to take control of the country. So, what we're seeing is a lot of war propaganda. Neoconservative warmongers want us to think that we're immoral if we don't support Donald Trump taking hasty military action to attack Assad before we even know that he's guilty yet. And again... Even if we can confirm, if we had the evidence to confirm that he's guilty, does that mean that we should attack Assad knowing what's at stake, knowing that Russia would be against it and they might want to escalate further with us and that Iran might want to escalate with us? I mean, this is a really, really terrifying scenario. And a lot of people accuse me and other progressives of being hyperbolic and talking about the potential for World War III, but with so much on the line, with so many lives that would be lost... I think we're right to sound the alarms. I mean, it wasn't too long ago that we invaded Iraq under false pretenses. We were told that they had weapons of mass destruction, and now we're being told that Assad is using chemical weapons against his own people, and the Secretary of Defense is saying, actually, when we bombed them because uh, Assad allegedly used chemical weapons against his own people, well, we actually don't have evidence that he's the culprit. First and foremost, it should not be up to the president to unilaterally wage war. That's up to Congress. Second of all, even if Donald Trump is empowered to act, if Congress gives him the authority to act, to take action against Syria, that doesn't mean that we should. So this is incredibly troubling. Um, there's really nobody countering this narrative in the mainstream media at all. So I think the aggregate public, American citizens, are going to go along with it. 
President Donald Trump used a lot of inflammatory rhetoric on the campaign trail, but one area that wasn't so bad was his views on foreign policy. Sometimes. At some points in his uh, campaign, he was fairly non-interventionist, and other times he was so neoconservative that he literally advocated for war crimes. Case in point. I say ISIS is our number one threat. We can't be fighting everybody at the same time. ISIS is our number one threat. So that's all you'd worry about. Just go with, find out where they are, take them out. Don't I even worry about a coalition. I would, I like to do one thing at a time. I would knock the hell out of ISIS. Okay. I would hit them, I would hit them, Brian, so hard like they've never what been What about hit civilian before. casualties? What, what about the fact that we're targeting them and people are very concerned about collateral damage? I would do my best, absolute best. I mean, one of the problems that we have and one of the reasons we're so ineffective is, you know, they're trying to... They're using them as shields. It's yes. a horrible thing. They're using them as shields. But we're fighting a very politically correct war. Yeah. Well, we see that the happening other thing in is with the terrorists, you have to take out their families. When you get these terrorists, you have to take out their families. They, they care about their lives. Don't kid yourself. Mr. But they Trump. say they don't care about their lives. You have to take out their families. You heard it there yourself. He didn't stutter. He didn't mince words. He stated clearly that you have to take out the families of terrorists. Now, since he's been president for more than a year, it doesn't really seem as though he's abandoned that philosophy, because in his first year as president, he not only increased the United States' use of drones by more than 400%, he also expanded the drone war to Niger, he doubled drone strikes in Somalia, tripled them in Yemen, and even though President Obama dramatically ramped up drone strikes when he was first elected in numerous countries, Trump killed more innocent civilians in his first year in office than Obama did during his total presidency, with 4,500 innocent civilians deaths reported. Now, Trump's administration has also lifted Obama-era rules that sought to limit the number of civilian casualties. But in spite of all of that, we haven't gotten a clear indication from Donald Trump that he is targeting civilians. Are they being reckless at a minimum? Absolutely. 4,500 deaths? That's war crimes. But for him to target civilians. That's a different story, and he hasn't really said that he's been doing that since he first stated that we should take out the families of ISIS on the campaign trail. Until now. So according to Morgan Stalter of The Hill, President Trump reportedly asked a CIA official why the agency didn't kill a terrorist target's family during a drone strike. The Washington Post reported Thursday that after watching a recorded video of a drone strike in Syria in which officials waited until the target was outside of his family's home, Trump asked, why did you wait? The agency's head of drone operations explained to an unimpressed Trump there are techniques to limit the number of civilian casualties. Trump called for the CIA to start arming its drones in Syria and reportedly asked for it to be started in 10 days. If you can do it in 10 days, get it done, Trump said in a meeting according to two former officials. This is the commander-in-chief asking a CIA official why they didn't bomb a house that had innocent civilians in it. So on the campaign trail, when he said that we should take out the families of ISIS, that was just inflammatory rhetoric. But now, this makes him a war criminal. I mean, the recklessness alone is an issue, of course. But the fact that he wants to target civilians, 
that takes this to a new level. And of course, this violates the Geneva Protocol. Now, we may not be a signatory to Protocol 1, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't abide by it because the guiding philosophy of Geneva is to make sure that civilian casualties are limited as little as possible. But we're pretending that it doesn't exist and that if we do war crimes, well then there should be no consequences for our elected officials. And speaking of international laws being violated, let's not forget that Donald Trump literally made the case for torture on national television just days after he was elected. Mr. President, you told me during one of the debates that you would bring back waterboarding yeah. and a hell of a lot worse. I would words. do what I would do. I want to keep our country safe. I want to keep our country safe. What does that when mean? When they're shooting, when they're chopping off the heads of our people and other people, when they're chopping off the heads of people because they happen to be a Christian in the Middle East, when ISIS is doing things that nobody has ever heard of since medieval times, would I feel strongly about waterboarding? As far as I'm concerned, we have to fight fire with fire. Now, with that being said, I'm going with General Mattis. I'm going with my secretary because I think Pompeo is going to be phenomenal. I'm going to go with what they say. But I have spoken as recently as 24 hours ago with people at the highest level of intelligence, and I asked them the question, does it work? Does torture work? And the answer was yes. That right there, and this story generally speaking, is exactly why progressives were outraged that President Obama didn't prosecute war criminals in the Bush administration. Because future presidents know they can commit war crimes and get away with it. There, there's going to be absolutely no consequences whatsoever because their successor won't prosecute them. And we now know that it was because Obama also didn't want his hands tied because he committed a lot of war crimes as well. So this is an absolute outrage. The fact that Trump didn't learn Obama's lesson when he initially ramped up drone strikes and had to scale them down pretty quickly once he learned how many civilians were being killed. The fact that Donald Trump didn't do that, but now is just making sure that we don't abide by rules to limit civilian casualties and just outright wants to target houses with innocent civilians in them. This is not good. History is going to judge Donald Trump and the United States very harshly, 4,500 civilians in his first year. Multiply that by four, potentially eight, if he gets a second term. And it's, un it's, un it's unfathomable. I don't even have the words to describe it. This is disgusting. Mainstream media needs to talk about this. But of course they won't. So just know what Donald Trump is doing. For those of you who voted for Donald Trump, thinking that he would be a non-interventionist, thinking that he would be the first Republican to put an end to neoconservatism or go in a different direction, you were horribly misled. And there were a lot of indications, in spite of his non-interventionist rhetoric that he occasionally espoused, that he would in fact be a warmonger, a neoconservative war criminal, just like Bush. Now, he hasn't done as much damage as Bush has done yet, but just give him time and he will. He has John Bolton as his national security advisor. Mike Pompeo may very well be his secretary of state. Give him time. He could potentially be as bad as Bush, if not worse. And look at what he's done in just a year. I mean, his first military raid resulted in how many civilian casualties? More than 10? Disgusting.
It is now April of 2018, and guess what? Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean drinking water. Their residents still are not able to turn on their faucet and get clean drinking water. It still has lead in it. But in spite of that fact, the governor of Michigan, Rick Schneider, has declared the crisis to be over. So according to Salvatore Nicholas of Washington Press, residents of Flint, Michigan have been without clean water for almost five years. Today, the thirsty residents found out the Republican governor, who allowed lead to poison the city's water supply, will no longer be providing the town with bottled water. The water crisis in Flint has flowed in and out of the news cycle since late 2015, when Republican Governor Rick Schneider requested bottled water to be distributed to inhabitants after the town's mayor declared a crisis in late 2015. The program was intended to be a safe alternative to the city's lead-polluted tap water. The duration of the program was supposed to be continued upon reaching safe levels of lead in the water. Even though those levels have yet to be reached, MLive reports Snyder has decided to cut the program. We have worked diligently to restore the water quality and the scientific data now proves the water system is stable and the need for bottled water has ended, Snyder noted in a press release. Continuing, since Flint's water is now well within the standards set by the federal government, we will now focus even more of our efforts on continuing with the health, education, and economic development assistance needed to help move Flint forward. Though Schneider claims the issue has been resolved, Flint Mayor Karen Weaver disagrees. After the announcement was made today, Weaver sent a letter to her greedy governor imploring him to continue providing the service. As I have stated before and will continue to say, this is not what I want for our city and I stand by my position that free bottled water should be provided to the people of Flint until the last known lead-tainted pipe has been replaced, she pleaded. So essentially, because Flint's condition has improved slightly, because some pipes that had lead in them were replaced, well, Rick Snyder is just declaring it over. The issue is now solved, and there's no longer a need for bottled water. But when you talk to Flint residents and hear what they have to say, well, they tell us a different story. This is a video that was actually posted to Twitter on April 8th, and it shows that their water is still very much contaminated. So clearly, in declaring this crisis over, Rick Snyder is ignorant, and he simply doesn't care about the residents of Flint. I mean, throughout this whole time, him allowing this to happen in the first place, his continued ambivalence, I don't understand how he hasn't been impeached yet for his incompetence and the way he grossly mishandled this issue, but here he is, tooting his own horn, declaring this crisis over as residents are still reporting to have lead in their drinking water. Now, when it comes to water bills in Flint, on average... They were the highest in the country, one of the highest in the country, at the height of this lead contamination crisis. And according to AJ+, since the water was contaminated and couldn't be used, a lot of Flint residents decided to stop paying their bills, and rightfully so. But now, in order to do basic things like flush the toilet, they're literally having to melt snow down in order to flush it. And this video was posted on April 9th. So clearly, the issue is far from over. The residents of Flint do not have clean drinking water yet. They don't. And the way that the residents of Flint have been treated is a scandal in and of itself. Because when some of these residents decided to take a stand and stop paying their water bill, I would have done that because I'm not going to pay for poison. It's the principle. Well, what they've tried to do in Flint is 
attach their water bills to their property taxes so that way if they don't pay for them then they could then put a lien on their houses on the houses of homeowners in flame i mean how absurd is that how how ridiculously scandalous is that why would anyone in their right mind pay for poison water who would do that certainly if you're going to pay for water then I expect that water to be clean and not contaminated, but to insist that they pay for their poison water is absurd, but yet they're being punished if they're doing something that is logical, not paying for their poison water. So, in general, getting back to this story about the issue basically being declared over and bottled water no longer being distributed to Flint, it's another slap in the face to the residents of Flint. And I don't know how I would deal with this. I mean, certainly... These are American citizens living in the richest country in the world with conditions that are similar to third world countries. Now, I'm bringing up that comparison. I'm not suggesting that Americans are inherently better or that their lives are more valuable than citizens in third world countries. But we have a country, we have a government with the resources to take care of 100% of our population. So the fact that we have citizens that have gone on this long with poison water, it shouldn't happen. It's an absolute outrage. I'm glad that finally they're getting funding to replace their lead-contaminated pipes. Yes, we're, we're all thankful for that. Should there be more money? Yeah, I think so. But you don't cut off a program that's crucial before the crisis is over. All that Rick Schneider had to do is talk to a resident from Flint and they would have told him, no, it's, it's not over. Look at our water. It's still yellow. Would you drink this? I wouldn't drink it. And I know that Rick Schneider wouldn't drink it, but he just doesn't give a damn about the residents of Flint. So the most that we can do uh, for those of us who don't live in Flint is try to shine a light on this issue. But I don't think that it's going to affect Rick Schneider in any way, shape or form. He just doesn't care. It's as simple as that. The teacher strike in Oklahoma is now entering its second week, and this is getting really exciting because they've undoubtedly gotten the attention of state lawmakers, and they're now gaining quite a bit of momentum. So according to Holly Yon and Tristan Smith of CNN, they report, emboldened by support from across the country, Oklahoma teachers swarmed the state capitol for a second week in their unrelenting quest for more school funding. And by some accounts, Monday's crowd was the biggest yet. Hundreds of schools closed Monday as teachers demanded $150 million more to replace dilapidated decades-old textbooks and fund elective courses. They also want higher raises for support staff and themselves. Some teachers walked 15 miles Monday to get to Oklahoma City. They bring the support and advice of West Virginia teachers whose nine-day strike last month led to a 5% pay raise. The teachers' massive protest has already yielded some action by legislators. Shortly before the April 2nd walkout, Governor Mary Fallin signed a bill that provided $50 million in funding for schools, increased teachers' salaries, and gave pay raises to support staff. But the package wasn't nearly as much as educators demanded, so major school districts shuttered and the walkout ensued. While thousands of students remain out of school indefinitely, OEA President Alicia Priest made clear what she thinks lawmakers must do 
to end the teacher walkout. She said Fallen must veto the legislature's repeal of the hotel motel tax and the legislature must pass a bill ending the state's capital gains tax deduction. Until then, don't expect teachers to end the walkout. The Oklahoma protesters join teachers from Kentucky, Arizona, and other states who have been fighting for more pay better education funding, and improved working conditions. So this right here is how you get things done. You make a demand and you hold your ground. You don't budge. And that's what they're doing. Legislators, they're inclined to listen because schools are shutting down because of these strikes. But when they didn't offer teachers what they wanted, which is reasonable, mind you, the teachers said, well, that's not good enough. We're going to continue to strike. Since they weren't able to appease the teachers by offering them a fraction of what they wanted, they're now resorting to attacks on these teachers. So the governor of Oklahoma, Mary Fallon, equated their demands to a bratty teenager who already has a car but simply wants a better one. And I'm not joking about that. She actually said this. Teachers want more, but it's not like having a teenage kid that wants a better car. But true, but their car has been taken away over the last 10 years. Well, it has been a difficult time, and that's why I'm very proud that this year we were able to get something done for our teachers. And that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is what I'd like to call a false equivalence because by doing that, you're suggesting that they're entitled and two, you're saying that what they have now will suffice when it won't. Teachers are having to take on second and third jobs in some cases and they're forced to go on welfare because they're not paid a living wage and this doesn't even account for the thousands in student loan debt some of them have likely taken on in order to acquire an education needed to teach in the first place. Furthermore, as their pay continues to decrease as the cost of living climbs, they're now having to foot the bill more more so than ever for classroom supplies since the state is no longer paying for it as they continue to cut education. So for someone with an estimated $3 million in net worth to suggest that these teachers who are paid starvation wages are entitled or being bratty teenagers, I mean, you should be ashamed of yourself, Mary. Where do you get off talking down to people who are just asking for something that is basic? They want a pay increase to basically keep up with the cost of living increases in the state of Oklahoma. How can you look them in the face? How can you look a journalist in the face and say that what they're doing is similar to a bratty teenager who demands a better car? Unbelievable. But of course, what matters a lot is what our education secretary says, since she oversees education across the United States. And billionaire Betsy also decided to look down on these teachers. As Corbett Smith of Dallas News reports, following her tour of a Dallas middle school on Thursday, U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos was asked her thoughts on the Oklahoma teacher strike, which has now stretched into its fifth day. Oklahoma teachers, whose salaries lag far behind most of the nation, haven't had a raise since 2008. After many walked out of classrooms on Monday and marched on the Capitol, Republican lawmakers moved quickly to pass a tax bill to increase school funding and give raises that would average about $6,000, but many teachers have vowed to stay away from the classroom until additional revenue measures are passed. I think we need to stay focused on what's right for kids, and I hope that adults would keep adult disagreements and disputes in a separate place and serve the students that are there to be served. So, billionaire Betsy of all people wants you to think that she cares about the children.
And certainly, her family has spent a lot on education, but not in a way that would suggest they give a damn at all about students and children, because as Valerie Strauss of the Washington Post explains, supporters call Betsy DeVos an advocate who cares for children. She may be that, but the policy expression of that concern has been one-sided, and as much about establishing an industry as it is about the kids. The DeVosses have helped private interests commandeer public money that was intended to fulfill the state's mandate to provide compulsory education. The family started the Great Lakes Education Project, whose political action committee does the most prolific and aggressive lobbying for charter schools. Betsy DeVos and other family members have given more than $2 million to the PAC since 2001. So that's how much our education secretary cares about the children. So she basically is sticking her nose in the air, looking down at these teachers, suggesting that what they're doing in striking is selfish. But she's got it backwards. If you actually really care about the children, then you have to make sure that teachers are taken care of. Because doesn't it make more sense that a teacher will be more effective if he or she doesn't have to take on a second job and be extra tired and worn out in the classroom? Doesn't it make more sense that... If you care about the students, you would make sure that you don't continuously cut education uh, funding and funnel that money to private charter schools. They don't support teachers. They think that teachers are being selfish. They think that these teachers are hurting students, but in actuality, what they're doing will be a net benefit for students if they're able to secure what they want. So I don't care how many smears Republicans, the governor, the education secretary, or even Donald Trump trots out against these teachers, lob whatever insult you want, but in staying there, standing firm and not caving, they are going to get what is needed for these students, and these teachers are heroes. So any Republican that tries to vilify them, be it Betsy DeVos... Mary Fallon, they should be ashamed of themselves because in vilifying these teachers and attacking these teachers who are striking for altruistic reasons, they're showing their true colors. They're showing that they don't give a damn about students. So to everyone who's striking in Oklahoma and Kentucky, uh, stay strong because we're rooting for you. We really are. Mainstream media pundits that have remained consistently loyal to the Democratic Party establishment jumped on an opportunity recently that presented itself to them that allowed them to not so subtly suggest that Bernie Sanders is not only racially insensitive, but that he still doesn't know how to talk to black voters. So what exactly is it that prompted these attacks? Well, it all comes down to this speech Bernie Sanders gave on the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. The business model, if you like, of the Democratic Party for the last 15 years or so has been a failure. Now, what happened, people sometimes don't see that because there was a charismatic individual named Barack Obama who won the presidency in 2008 2012. He was obviously an extraordinary candidate, brilliant guy. But behind that reality, over the last 10 years, Democrats have lost about 1,000 seats in state legislatures all across this country. And you've got significant numbers of states, like Mississippi, where the governor, the legislature, the senators are all Republicans. Okay. Now, how does this happen 
at a time when the Republican agenda is the agenda of the billionaire class and is at war with working people? How does it happen that a party that wants to give tax breaks to billionaires and throw millions of people off the health insurance, they have actually wins elections? So one of the things that we have got to do, as I mentioned earlier, is make sure that the Democrats, you don't win elections unless you show up. So you might have missed it, but apparently that speech was controversial. I know. So this is specifically the part that they took issue with. The business model of the Democratic Party for the last 15 years has been a failure. People sometimes don't see that because there was a charismatic individual named Barack Obama who won the presidency in 2008 and 2012. He was obviously an extraordinary candidate, brilliant guy, but behind that reality, over the last 10 years, Democrats have lost 1,000 seats in legislatures across the country. And yes, that's being construed as an attack on Barack Obama. I'm not kidding. So, not only did Bernie Sanders compliment Obama, but what he's saying here is factually correct. Under the leadership of President Obama, even if everything did seem peachy keen, even if he was a charismatic speaker, the Democratic Party was losing power. They were hemorrhaging support because they weren't delivering on the promise to protect workers, and Barack Obama himself wasn't delivering on his promise to change the way that we do politics in this country. Now, if I were Bernie Sanders, I would have been a lot more harsh in my criticism of President Obama, but nonetheless, even though he was mild in his criticism of the Democratic Party and only indirectly criticized Barack Obama, well, the reason why Democratic Party loyalists find that controversial is because, as CNN's Gregory Krieg puts it, his mention of Obama at that time in that place caused anger and frustration in some already skeptical quarters of the Democratic base, particularly among those who argue Sanders' insistence on framing inequality as a chiefly economic matter with racial concerns existing downstream from that core divide effectively downplays the fight for racial justice. So that's why they're apparently angry. In other words, they just found an opportunity where they thought they could dogpile Bernie Sanders because he's currently the most popular politician in the country and the 2020 Democratic primaries will kick off next year. So if you want to smear him in advance of him even announcing his campaign, this is a great way to do that. And CNN's Bakari Sellers jumped on this opportunity saying, quote, y'all can defend Bernie all you want on MLK 50. His lack of self-awareness and arrogance in dismissing Barack Obama is wild. Bernie 2020 died on April 4th of 2018. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that. Stick a fork in Bernie 2020, guys. It's over because Bakari Sellers, a CNN shill, says so. Well, Bakari, um, Hillary 2016 was over in 2008, but you guys are still trying to shove her down our throats. Still. So, for you to unilaterally declare Bernie's 2020 presidential campaign over before it even began... Uh, I think that you're a little bit ahead of yourself here, but he wasn't the only one who decided to declare Bernie's remarks as insensitive because actor Jeffrey Wright, who stars in HBO's Westworld, who's a self-proclaimed radical capitalist and generally shitty person who's actually exploiting a community in Sierra Leone for personal gain, 
tweeted out, Nah, no, nope. Bernie didn't go down to Jackson, Mississippi, MLK assassination, 50th anniversary, and try to drag Obama, who ain't perfect at all. But Bernie, if you want more than three Southern black folks voting for you, you're tripping. White working class Bernie. Okay, first of all, stop trying to disaggregate the working class. There's no such thing as the white working class or the black working class. It's just the working class. The same issues that affect white working class voters are the same exact issues that affect black working class voters and Latino working class voters, but certain issues in particular affect marginalized minorities even more. But Bernie Sanders, thankfully, has solutions to all of the problems of the entire aggregate working class. But Jeffrey Wright doesn't see it that way. Someone who literally is a gold digger who's exploiting an already exploited country. He apparently knows more about the working class than Bernie Sanders, but he continues here. Here's the issue. Assessing the Dem Party as a failure over the last 15 years argues, despite the compliments, that Obama, de facto leader of the party for eight of those years, is a failure too. Even if true, unwise trying to sell that in the Deep South on the 50th anniversary of MLK's death. So you're not allowed to criticize Obama on the 50th anniversary of MLK's assassination because why now? I don't, I don't get it. President Obama is a neoliberal centrist who ramped up the drone war immediately when he came to power and killed thousands of innocent civilians. His administration aggressively prosecuted whistleblowers more so than any other president in our country's history. He literally called up the president of Yemen and pressured him to keep a journalist that reported on a drone strike in jail. He also authorized the execution of an American citizen, Anwar al-Awlaki, and then killed his son soon after. He also made the Bush tax cuts permanent. He tried to cut Social Security. He aggressively lobbied for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He's now taking millions of dollars from Wall Street to give them private speeches in the same way that Hillary Clinton did. He also didn't push for single-payer when Democrats had a supermajority. And also, he basically demoralized my generation, who voted for him for the first time after he promised us hope and change. So, it's just a fact that President Obama was a failure. Disappointment at a minimum. So to say that we're not allowed to critique him is absolutely absurd. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke truth to power and in criticizing Obama, irrespective of the fact that he was the first African-American president, we are speaking truth to power regardless if rich oligarchs like Jeffrey Wright want to condemn us and imply, not so subtly so again, that Bernie Sanders is racially insensitive for doing this. Now, of course, the mainstream media also jumped on board because they couldn't not report about this because Bernie Sanders, he said something that was construed somehow as being controversial. So these are the types of headlines we saw throughout the week. BuzzFeed's Ruby Kramer and Darren Sands asks, Bernie Sanders' revolution needs black voters to win, but can he talk to them? And Bill Burrow states, Bernie Sanders struggles with new path to black voters as he mulls another presidential bid. Now, admittedly, to a degree at least, I understand why in 2016 that was a legitimate decision discussion to be having because Hillary Clinton, she was able to secure a lot of support from the black community in 2016, particularly with voters in the South because he's a senator that comes from a predominantly white state who had little to no national name recognition at that time, in part thanks to a media blackout of his campaign. So that allowed Democratic Party operatives to spin that situation as him being unable to talk to black voters. However, in 2018, 
that narrative is no longer valid because the 2017 Harvard Harris poll found that Bernie Sanders' approval rating among African Americans is now 21 points higher than it is with whites. Now, additionally, a 2018 Quinnipiac poll found that Bernie Sanders' favorability among blacks is again much higher than it is with whites by 27 points to be exact. Now that's two polls, one from 2017 and one from 2018 that indicates not only that Bernie Sanders' support within the African American community has increased since 2017, but that it's continually growing. So to suggest that he's still unable to speak with the black voters or that his message won't resonate with black voters, it's factually incorrect. But that doesn't stop Democratic Party loyalists from still using that line to attack Bernie Sanders because what else do they got? Well, I want to share a clip from I-24 News' David Schuster because he has a theory as to why Democratic Party loyalists are still trotting out the same tired talking point about Bernie Sanders. Last week, Sanders said the business model of the Democratic Party for the last 15 years or so has been a failure. Sanders spoke of the Democratic Party aligning with Wall Street, military industrial companies, fossil fuel corporations, and big pharma. And he noted that the gap in America between rich and poor keeps growing. And traditional Democratic Party constituents, including African Americans, he said, are falling further and further behind. Sanders said a lot of people didn't see it during the last Democratic administration because Barack Obama was an extraordinary candidate, brilliant guy, and a charismatic leader. Listening to Democratic pundits, you would have thought that Sanders committed murder. They accuse Sanders of turning his back on African Americans, dishonoring the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., and being insensitive insensitive. In a way, the Democratic Party claim that Bernie Sanders is insensitive is actually correct. He wants Medicare for all, free college tuition, and regulation of Wall Street. And it all terrifies the Democratic Party and its business interests. Plus, polls show that Sanders is the most popular politician in America today. And it makes him the front runner for the Democratic 2020 presidential nomination. And since the Democratic establishment cannot beat him in a policy debate, they resort to personal smears. Watch out, it's gonna get a lot worse. That's exactly it right there. Since they can't beat him in a policy debate, they resort to personal smears. And he's absolutely right, it'll get a lot worse. This is only the beginning. The Democratic Party primaries will kick off next year, and you can bet your ass that more than ever, Democratic Party loyalists and centrist Democrats will be scrambling to do everything in their power to smear Bernie Sanders as a racist, as a sexist, as a homophobe, because he has a message that's popular and will resonate with the American people. So understand that as they do this and they simultaneously complain about Trump, they're only hurting a candidate that actually is the best suited to defeat Donald Trump in 2020. Now, the reason why I'm using this point, because I don't think that they're going to actually hurt Bernie Sanders' chances, but this is what they told us in 2016. They said that in us, progressives, pointing out Hillary Clinton's corruption, we were hurting her chances going up against Donald Trump. So watch as they hypocritically do the same thing they told us not to do. Well, look, it doesn't matter. The Bernie train is not stopping for anyone. You can either get on or get off it, but progressives will take over the Democratic Party and we will fundamentally change the Democratic Party. And that is with or without Bernie. 
And if we can't change the Democratic Party, then guess what? It's going to collapse and a new party will emerge to take its place because we can only go on for so long with two right-wing parties before the country just stands up and says enough is enough. So continue to attack Bernie Sanders, but the American people know what the agenda is of the establishment. It's to make sure that the corporate class is continuously served. Bernie Sanders is not going to be good for that agenda. That's why they're attacking him. It's as simple as that. So on April 23rd, the FCC's repeal of net neutrality will officially go into effect. So now is the time to take action if you care about net neutrality. Now, thus far, there's been a number of governors who took action to unilaterally secure net neutrality via executive order. And there's also two states that passed a bill into law to make sure that net neutrality is mandated. And this includes Washington and, I've got great news, Oregon just became the second state to codify a bill into law. As Gizmodo's Melanie Ehrenkatz reports, in February, three middle school students helped push a statewide net neutrality bill. Today, Governor Kate Brown is headed to the girls' middle school in Portland, where she will sign the bill into law. It's an honor for the governor to come to our school and sign a bill that's so important to the three of us, Luca, a 12-year-old at Mount Tabor Middle School, told Gizmodo in an email. Luca, along with friends Lola, 13, and Athena, 13, testified before the Oregon House Committee on Rules in support of the bill, helping bring greater attention to it before the state's lawmakers voted it through to Governor Brown's desk. The legislation, House Bill 4155, aims to help guarantee that Oregon residents get the net neutrality protections that the Federal Communication Commission killed in December of last year. Specifically, the Republican-led FCC voted to overturn the agency's 2015 open internet order, which forbade internet service providers from throttling or blocking legal online content or paid prioritization, better known as fast lanes for companies that pay to have their services delivered to customers at greater speeds. Oregon's new law makes it illegal for the state's public bodies to work with internet service providers that take part in discriminatory activities such as paid prioritization and blocking content online. However, as Ars Technica puts it, it is likely ISPs will sue to strike down Oregon's new law as companies like AT&T and Verizon had said they would do in response to other state efforts. When the federal government repealed net neutrality, they took a step backward, Governor Brown said in a speech on Monday at Mount Tabor. In Oregon, we want to move forward to make sure that the internet is a level playing field instead of exacerbating economic disparity. Now, it is true that AT&T and Verizon will be challenging this. In fact, the lobbying firm that represents them has, or has already stated publicly that they will aggressively challenge any state that chooses to pass their own net neutrality rules. But with that being said, this is still a victory because even if it's struck down, the fact that we have it on the books at least for a year or two, that is only further strengthening our argument, and it's better for the residents of Oregon if we have net neutrality longer. So this might be temporary, who knows if it's struck down or not, but even if it is, it's still important, it's still a win. Now again, Washington was the only other state that passed a bill protecting net neutrality. And when it comes to the five states whose governors stepped up, that includes Montana, New Jersey, New York, Hawaii, and Vermont. Now, Currently, there's just a couple of weeks left, and if you live in a state that hasn't taken action yet, it may be the case that your state does act because there are bills circulating in multiple legislatures. That includes Alaska, California, Colorado, Delaware, Georgia, 
Idaho, Kansas, Kentucky, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Missouri, Nebraska, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. Now, these states in particular are important because they're considering bills to protect net neutrality and they haven't had a governor step up to protect net neutrality unilaterally with an executive order. So if you live in one of these states, please do yourself a favor and call your state representative or state senator and make sure that he or she supports this bill. Because as of the 23rd of April, net neutrality will be gone federally. And you will be vulnerable. Your ISP has the authority to block websites, to throttle content, and it's not going to be good. Now, Connecticut was previously on that list until just recently when two Republicans, one in particular, decided to unilaterally kill it in commission or committee, excuse me. Paul Formica, in particular, invoked this really weird, obscure legislative rule to make sure it doesn't even get voted on. So the fight to stop progress that we're making, it's fierce. These internet service providers have billions in profit potentially to be made with the repeal of net neutrality, and they're doing everything in their power to stop the momentum. But we can't stop the momentum. Now, unfortunately, I've seen a lot of people tune out of the net neutrality debate. And we can't do that. We have to stay vigilant and we have to exert pressure on lawmakers because if we don't, then they will back down because there's a lot of political issues that need our attention currently or need their attention more specifically. So if we basically don't put pressure on them and keep pressure on them consistently, then they're going to tune out and focus on something else. But we can't let them. We have to make sure that we take action to protect net neutrality. And in many states, that's that just requires a phone call. It takes five minutes of your time. If you really have a lot of time or you live close to your state capital, show up. I mean, this is something that's really important. Again, April 23rd, net neutrality will be gone. And again, even for the states like Oregon and Washington and Montana and New Jersey, who, seven states really at this point, who have net neutrality, who saved it either through an executive order or legislation, that may not be permanent. It may not be a permanent solution. But at least for now, it extends net neutrality in those specific states and protects it longer. So residents in those states will still have net neutrality protections that Ajit Pai and the FCC repealed until it's challenged. So, I've said this once, I'll say it again. It's crunch time for net neutrality. If you care about this issue, you've got to take action and, you, and you've got to influence your friends and family to take action because to have an internet without net neutrality, I don't want to envision what that would be like. I mean, we've, we've already done that, right? We've, we've catastrophized what the internet will look like without net neutrality and certainly it's not all going to change at once. It's going to be subtle. They're going to slowly implement these changes, but... Really, when you look back at this point, I want you to feel as though you did everything you could to make sure you made a difference. Because 10 years from now, if net neutrality isn't saved, the internet will look completely different. And nothing would make me happier than to be proven wrong, but I know that there's too much on the line for these internet service providers. There's too much money to be made to not use this repeal of net neutrality to screw us over. So take action and fight if you really want to save net neutrality in your state.
The FCC's stunning lack of transparency under the leadership of Ajit Pai has been honestly baffling to a lot of people. It's been laughable, really, because they've done everything they possibly could do to hide seemingly benign, unimportant things. So, for example, Gizmodo wanted to obtain emails and details about a skit that Ajit Pai created with a Verizon executive, and they blocked that. So now we have another situation where the FCC received a FOIA request for details about the Harlem Shake video he created with the Daily Caller, and guess what? To no one's surprise, they're blocking details about that from getting out as well. So Ben Collins of NBC News reports, in December, the day before the Federal Communications Commission voted to repeal its net neutrality rules, the agency's chairman, Ajit Pai, appeared in a video for conservative news website The Daily Caller because many people were surprised to see a high-ranking government policymaker explaining the new internet rules while dancing and waving a lightsaber or wearing a Santa suit and sunglasses. The video raced across the internet and has racked up more than 1.4 million views since it was published on YouTube. The origins of the video, however, weren't entirely clear. Clear. Whose idea was it? Who wrote the script? Did the other FCC commissioners know about it? So Muckrock, a nonprofit organization that helps request and analyze government documents, filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the FCC four months ago for agency emails about the video, a request that would seem relatively innocuous. The request was denied this week. The organization is now appealing the denial and considering a lawsuit. The very basic fact that they're unwilling to even disclose whether anybody had objections to this internally or if they were all aboard is the larger problem, said J. Pat Brown, the executive editor of Muckrock. You are entitled answers out of your government. The FCC declined to comment. So Ajit Pai creates this skit seemingly to gin up support for his highly unpopular repeal of net neutrality. Um, I mean, the way that he framed the skit was that, hey, it's no big deal, it's fun, right? I mean, he he used old memes that have been dead for years. Um, he definitely tried to appeal to millennials, clearly, since we're the ones who are speaking out the loudest against his net neutrality repeal. And, you know, you'd think that it's not that big of a deal to obtain details about this. And what they're asking for, I mean, in particular, Muckrock is trying to figure out if anyone within the FCC was against this. That's all they want to know. But the FCC won't even give them that. So this just really is a microcosm of a broader issue within the FCC. And honestly, this is the least problematic of all the things that the FCC has tried to hide away from the public because... New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman is conducting an investigation into comment fraud that occurred during the comment process when the FCC announced that they'd be repealing net neutrality. Well, there were thousands upon thousands of fake comments that were created by bots. Now, Eric Schneiderman's office has repeatedly tried to obtain information from the FCC and the FCC has not complied with any requests for information. He's literally obstructing justice. Because if there is a problem, if comments are being created by bots at the behest of internet service providers, then this is this is fraud. So Eric Schneiderman is trying to investigate exactly what happened. He's trying to obtain information about who's culpable. Who did this? Was it an outside actor? Was it Ajit Pai? Was he complicit? Was anyone from within the FCC assisting some company with the creation of these bots, and Ajit Pai has been completely unwilling to cooperate with New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman's investigation. Completely unwilling. Anytime the public does a Freedom of Information Act request, 
any foil that's been filed. He's basically said, nope, not going to get any info from us. No details whatsoever. Even if it is benign, even if it's something that really shouldn't matter, like a skit or the creation of the Harlem Shake video, still not going to give you anything. So to me, that says a lot about Ajit Pai, that he's really hiding corruption. It seems as though someone who wasn't corrupt, who didn't have anything to hide, would be more than willing to offer this information up to the public. But the fact that he's doing all of this to hide even the most dumbest things that shouldn't be hidden, it shows that his corruption probably was really brazen. I mean, maybe his emails to the Daily Caller staff talked about his corruption or, you know, was him discussing his relationship to the industry? I mean, who knows? But I mean, we we know he came from the industry. He was a Verizon attorney. And then after he leaves his job at the FCC, more than likely, he's going to become an attorney again for Verizon or maybe uh, be placed in a higher position for even more pay. We know that's exactly what's going to happen because this revolving door in Washington, D.C., where government uh, officials go on to work for the agencies that they regulated or deregulated, I should say. It happens all the time. And Ajit Pai is no different. But there is something unique about this case. His unwillingness to cooperate with any Freedom of Information Act requests says that he has a lot more to hide than we initially thought. And one day this information will get out. It will. And um, I think it's going to confirm what we all suspect about Ajit Pai. He is unapologetically and brazenly corrupt. And since he's unwilling to cooperate with any Freedom of Information Act requests, since he went against the overwhelming majority of the American people, since he's not willing to step down, he should be impeached. And the fact that Democrats or no one in Congress that's prominent is stepping up to suggest this is mind-boggling to me. A prominent corporate Democrat who is likely going to be running in 2020 just revealed her true colors at a recent event where she was asked whether or not she would swear off corporate money. Her answer was pretty telling. So according to Gregory Krieg of CNN, on Thursday, Harris was taking audience questions when a man stepped to the mic and zeroed in on her fundraising methods. If a corporation or corporate lobbyist wants to give you money for a campaign, he asked, will you tell them thanks but no thanks? Well, it depends, Harris replied. It depends. The questioner, his arms crossed at the waist, declared this the wrong answer. Well, that's not the answer you want to hear, Harris said. It doesn't make it wrong. She continued, acknowledging the legitimate concerns, then explaining her philosophy. I appreciate the reason that you're asking it. I do. I appreciate that, Harris said. And that's why we have rules that require that any donation that anyone receives needs to be disclosed so that you can do an assessment and the voters can do an assessment and look at where the contributions come from and make your decisions about whether those contributions have influenced the way that people act and the way that people vote. Enough of Harris's colleagues clearly expect they won't. On February 13th, both Gillibrand and Booker, her first and him a few hours later, resolved to reject corporate PAC contributions. Gillibrand cited the corrosive effect of money in politics, while Booker called for the reform of a broken campaign finance system. Both joined a group of liberal senators headlined by Sanders and Warren in making their pledges. Harris, like Biden, doesn't seem likely to make a similar promise, but on a presidential debate stage, surrounded by mostly like-minded candidates, her refusal to forswear corporate donations can and will be used against her, especially by the expected glut of more aggressively progressive hopefuls. So, I found her answer here to be 
one, morally objectionable by saying, well, you know, it's not necessarily the wrong answer, it's just the answer that you didn't want to hear. Well, that's not really true. Morally speaking, if you're a liberal, you can't state that corporate PAC money isn't problematic. You just can't. I mean, when you look at studies, specifically one from Princeton University by Drs. Gillens and Page, they found that Average citizens have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes, but when you gauge the level of influence business interests and economic elites have on policy outcomes, it's statistically significant. Meaning, we live in an oligarchy. What we want has absolutely no influence on policy outcomes. So how can you look a voter in the face and say that it's not necessarily inherently wrong, but that he just doesn't agree with her philosophy. And second of all, she's being really disingenuous and trying to explain away the problem with corporate cash because it's not that you can just look and see, oh, well, this person took money from Wall Street and Walmart, so I'm against them. These candidates have super PACs, and those super PACs don't have to disclose who contributes to them. So she's lying. She knows this. She's a seasoned politician. She was the California Attorney General before she became a U.S. Senator. She knows about super PACs. She knows that this is all dark money that can't be traced. And yet she's lying to him, saying, oh, well, you know what? Um, these large multinational corporations, they only can contribute up to the uh, limit, $2,700. Well, you know that that's not true, Kamala. Are you going to swear off a super PAC as well? Because if you are, then that's a little bit of a different story, but she's not doing that. In fact, she's saying here, not only is she going to continue to accept corporate money, but she's admitting by virtue of omission that she is not swearing off any PAC money. So what she's doing here essentially is saying, you know, I, I will reach out to progressives by um, co-sponsoring Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, but I'm not going to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a stand here. I'm going to draw the line at corporate PAC money. I'm not doing that. So in other words, you're admitting, essentially, that you're corrupt. You're willing to be bought off. She's sending a message to the Democratic Party's corporate donors that she's fair game. She's willing to play ball with them. And this is part of the reason why, in 2017, there were all these stories about how the Democratic Party's donors were lining up behind Kamala Harris and how excited they were for her, for her. That's why there was so much buzz surrounding Kamala Harris because the donor class was buzzing. She got them really excited because they found someone who would potentially fill the shoes of Hillary Clinton. Now, I'm not saying that she's as bad as Hillary Clinton. I think objectively speaking, there's no way she comes anywhere near Hillary Clinton. But with that being said, uh, I am done just settling in this country for Democrats who refuse to do the right thing. This isn't a difficult decision if you're principled, if you're not corrupt. Swearing off corporate PAC money, and corporate money just generally speaking, even if it's limited to $2,700, is something that is essential for me to vote for a Democrat. Why? Because even if it's the case, hypothetically speaking, that Kamala Harris was against Medicare for All, well, if she didn't take money from the health insurance industry, then... I would assume that she came to that conclusion, even if it's wrong, based on principled reasons. She's just personally against it. But when a politician takes corporate PAC money, I have no doubt in my mind that they're influenced by that money. So, what she did here was pretty much seal her fate. She's not going to get the support from progressives. She's not. Joe Biden won't either. Trying to 
convince us that you care for us as you take corporate money, I mean, that's inherently contradictory. You have to be either with us and against corporations or with corporations and against us. You can't have your feet in both camps. It doesn't work that way. We've we've seen how the game is played, how the game is rigged for too long, and we know either you're with us or against us. And she just uh, took a stand here. She's not with us. She's with the large multinational corporations. She's with the party's billionaire donors. Well, um, we'll find out um, how this affects her in 2020. But unfortunately for her, I don't think this is going to be very great in terms of her winning over progressives. I know she's made you know, some efforts to win us over, but she just completely fucked that all up right now. Good job, Kamala. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode. Interviews should resume the following week. Uh, I believe we have Tamarine Borelli and hopefully Tim Canova lined up. So it should be great. Also, Establishment Exile should be premiering again, or re-premiering, I should say, towards the end of April. So it's just a matter of me figuring out how to use our new live streaming software, which those of you who know me a little bit more know that I'm not very smart when it comes to new technology or learning to new to use new uh software so hopefully you guys enjoyed the show as usual i want to send a big shout out to all of our patreon and paypal contributors thank you all so much for helping the show not only survive but thrive as well i will see you all next week take care cue the music